for that decision today, I accept full responsibility. We hear it every week. It doesn't really matter which country you're in. That was an image. Take responsibility. But in the UK, it feels particularly pronounced. Will they have the courage to act or will they refuse to take responsibility? The familiar sound of British politics, where one party almost constantly blames another for whatever has gone wrong. It can feel like a game, and sometimes it is just that. But what does this achieve? In fact, more than that, what does it create? This blame culture, I believe, is part of the reason why we fail to learn from catastrophes, why we fail to change. What I've seen in my work in high hazard industries is that not only does blame achieve nothing, it hinders openness and is one more reason why accidents happen. This is the Catastrophe Podcast. I'm Jill Koenig, a consultant working in high hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless, grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change. To speak to other experts and frontline workers. To expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes. And ultimately, to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. And with me on this journey, and you'll know why if you've listened already to our episode on fire, is Matthew Price, a journalist who I first met when he was with the BBC. He's now at Sky News. Jill, in this episode, we're going to talk to three people who know all about the blame game. In fact, that's the title of Christopher Hood's book. We'll be speaking to him in a bit. But first, we wanted to speak to two people who know the front line of politics in this country extremely well. Charlotte Ivers is a political journalist and works for Times Radio. And Salma Shah has been a government advisor. She worked in four different departments. She knows all about blame. She says it is part of how politics works in the UK. So I think the first thing to note about the British political context is that we have an adversarial system. And so in order to win an election and in the intervening time, it's sort of central to our system that you uh, are able to apportion blame. Uh, another way of thinking of that is holding those in power to account. So blame in, in some instances serves a very important political function. So given that, is it possible for politicians to be able to hold their hands up and say, I'm sorry, we got it wrong? Yes, it's it's happened, you know, on notable occasions. But it is the exception to the rule rather than the rule itself. So I would add to that in terms of the wider context, we recently particularly have seen fewer politicians resigning over issues that might previously have been considered a resigning matter. 
And I think really the reason for that is a perfect storm of conditions, which makes that easier than it usually is. So the first one, of course, is the government's huge majority. You don't have the pressure from MPs on people to resign in the same way that you might have done under a previous administration. So look at Nick Timothy, Theresa May's chief of staff, for example, having to resign after losing the general election in 2017. That came from pressure from a very small number of Conservative MPs on Theresa May to get rid of him. And she had to go with that because, of course, it wouldn't take many rebellions to gets that to happen or to take her out of power. But then look at Dominic Cummings and you had a much larger number of MPs who wanted him to go. But because of that big majority, Boris Johnson didn't feel the need to do so. Combine that as well with the fact that Boris Johnson clearly values personal loyalty very, very highly. He has people who he's worked with for a long time. He feels very reliant on them sometimes. He operates in a manner which essentially involves him being a chairman quite a lot of the time and recruiting good people and relying on their decisions as he sees them to be good decisions. So you don't really see allies of his resigning. Gavin Williamson would be one of those when it came to the A-levels fiasco last summer. We didn't see a resignation from him there and he has been a key part of Boris Johnson's journey. He was a key part of his leadership contest. I think Johnson's a lot happier changing policy and U-turning on policy than he is on individuals. And the final thing I'd say is part of the reason why Johnson feels like that is a way he can operate is because of the media landscape. There's clearly been a calculated decision within Downing Street that most media storms can be outridden. And you see the way they operate. They exist for a couple of days, then someone will comment on them, that gives them a couple more days, but then it's over very, very quickly. And pretty much you can ride out the storm as a cabinet minister who's being asked to resign most of the time because of the way the media operates. Sharma, what does it do when either the minister that you're working for or or you as a special advisor realise that the finger of blame is about to be pointed at you and and your colleagues what what does that then do sort of both mentally but also in terms of policy I think with that is that um, if you're a minister or a special advisor I mean you're pretty much blamed every day for everything that's going on by one person or another whether it's you know stakeholders or people in the media or you know quite often just people that you encounter and your own family members so if you are in a position of power or influence or you are a significant decision maker it's sort of open season on you as to whether you're blamed for things or not. In an instant where something significant has happened and people have questions, I think you've got to expect those. And like most people, the initial instinct is to mount a defence of yourself and your actions. And I think it sort of depends on what the issue is as to whether you feel that blame is justified or not. So it's slightly kind of, you know, it's a bit of a cop-out answer because there isn't, a, uh, it's all specific. There isn't kind of like a, a general thing that I can point to that would cover everybody's experiences. But I think the natural position, especially as I say previously in adversarial politics, is that you try and justify what you've done in your actions and you try and defend what you've done. Um, but sometimes because it's so frequent, the fact that, you know, people are criticising you all the time, I think there is some part of blame culture that sort of just is 
you know, wash off a duck's back, you just get very used to it. You get very used to sort of being criticised. So perhaps when it really does matter, um, it takes a little bit of time before you take it seriously. Can I just ask a question, Chris? I think, Selma, you were using the words blame and accountability as the same. And in, in my world, they're not at all the same. So there is this world of holding people to account, which is about understanding the systemic issues that were at play who failed to fulfill on a stated accountability or role, which can help us learn and understand things that can lead to systemic change. Whereas blame's much more a personal attack. And in fact, from my perspective, hides those systemic issues. It's almost kind of like puts this veneer of attacking individuals that actually stops you from holding people to account. I think that's that's right. And in anybody's sort of natural understanding, that's how they would distinguish those two things. But as I say, the political system is worked around so that actually those two things are essentially the same. Because if you are a decision maker and you are elected as a decision maker, your choices make a difference. Now, there could be a whole host of reasons as to why, um, you know, a certain thing ended up in the way that it did. And it might not be the, the individual's responsibility who is there in that ministerial post at the time. But they are accountable for everything that happens on their watch. They can't sort of, you know, push it over to somebody else. And because it's an individual, that's where blame comes in, because it's your fault. You did this. You're the person standing at the dispatch box. And I think it's very hard to separate that sort of line of attack or line of questioning from the general principles of accountability in a system and a structure. So whilst I can completely agree with you, they are two different things. In the way that you action it and the mechanism, the, it sort of becomes blurred, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. I mean, that's what I witness. Is that there isn't a distinction, <laughs> hence we don't learn. No, we don't learn, but you can't allow that because, you know, as I say, if if you are going to try and win an election, you cannot allow for, you know, compassion and humanity to come in when you're dealing with the opposition. And as terrible as it sounds, we try not to structure ourselves for a system that's going to be a coalition. I would add to that as well. I think there's a tendency among politicians and among the media to sort of take a great man view of history on these things and or not so great man view of history as the case may be, whereby you have blame for an individual. And in doing that, you miss some of the structural problems behind that individual that would lead to accountability and that maybe if we fix those structures, it would have a lot more success at making things better in the future than just getting rid of the person at the top. So to take the Gavin Williamson A-levels question, for example, when Gavin Williamson didn't resign over that, there are a lot of calls for him to take the blame, whereas actually a lot of what we were hearing from people around Williamson was, oh, we didn't know what Ofqual were doing until the last minute. And you think that surely is the big problem. If the person we have elected and the Prime Minister has chosen to be our representative for education, doesn't know what's going on in something as vast as that. That is a structural problem that we should look into and change. And I think similar as well with Dominic Cummings. We saw him giving evidence to a select committee the other day, and he described the Department of Health as a smoking ruin when the pandemic started. Now, a lot of people took that as an attack. Dominic Cummings, obviously, something a bet noir for a lot of people, 
But if the Department of Health was a smoking ruin at the start of the pandemic, that is a much, much bigger issue than whether one man let the country down by travelling up to Barnard Castle or not. It sounds like you're you're both saying that it's really structurally hard to learn or to act on any lessons that are learned or to genuinely look to learn lessons. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's another thing involved in it, which is, I think structural is the right word, because when you have political cycles of five years, which, you know, are completely reasonable and sensible, because at some point the people need to decide that they're going to throw out their democratically elected government and potentially have change or continue with what they have. When you think about other cycles of kind of reform and change and understanding, they are not as short as five-year cycles, especially when you're kind of like taking off the top level of departments and replacing them with an entirely new team. So behind the scenes, you know, at every election, you've got, um, you know, the civil servants who will reach out to the opposition and start thinking about how they may or may not implement their policies, depending on what happens at an election result. But these things, they're not substantive. This is not about running a programme of government for a 50-year period. It is just that short-term cycle. And so structurally, learning from mistakes, uh, you, know, you can't do that if kind of like the people that were responsible have all suddenly gone. And, and it goes back to the point that if blame is attached to a person, then once you get a new person, OK, miraculously, the problem has disappeared. But of course, it hasn't, not in reality. So, yes, structurally, we are not built to learn from our mistakes. I don't think many governments are. I would add to the political cycles issue, and this is something Salma will have come across much more than me, having worked in various government departments, but the way we've set up the civil service, both at the junior end and at the senior end, really seems to fetishise movement and being a generalist. It sort of seems to be a hangover from the era where you'd go to eat and go to Oxford, be an all-round good lad and know a little bit about everything. And because you were so excellent in the eyes of the people hiring you, you could pretty much turn your hand to anything. And we still do that. We see it as a positive within the civil service to move people around a lot and give them a lot of experience which may be a good thing, but it does mean there tends to be little institutional memory and little understanding of the much deeper structures and problems that are within various different government departments. So I was just going to say to that, I think there's a constant tension in the bureaucracy about what is better for a corporate culture across an organisation that is as vast as, you know, the UK government's bureaucracy. So there is always this tension between uh, creating the right level of uh, expertise and moving people around so that it, it beats inertia in certain departments and sort of doing things always the same way without having any innovative or creative thinking versus creating a, a, a too generalist base. I think the other thing that's sort of that's also quite interesting about this is that it's not just a question of expertise, it's also a question of principles. So the idea that you've done uh, PPE at Oxbridge, what it sort of suggests is that there is an establishment basis of what are the accepted rules and accepted ways of doing things. And so even though you don't have any particular expertise, you do understand, you know, the the underlying principles of uh, philosophy and economics and politics. So that is what you're supposed to be bringing to the table, really, if you're at the senior levels of the civil service and or if you're a senior politician. 
I think there is also a distinct lack of principles that continue because there's so much shifting and changing that nobody really knows what the core and the centre of uh, of a job like a senior politician is supposed to be anymore because there are so many pressures and there are so many variables in terms of what you're supposed to prioritise that actually the, the core is missing. Um, and that is a lot to do with perhaps hiding from blame, being able to, sh- to show that um, actually I, I'm doing the best that I can when really, you know, to Charlotte's earlier point, the better thing might be to do to just fall on your sword and resign and sort of move on. So there's a principles issue as well. And I think because uh, one of the things that interests me is complexity because the world's increasingly complex and traditional kind of bureaucratic ways of command and control leadership are increasingly um, ineffective, to be polite. Um, and one of the, the key uh, things in terms of leading in complex world is being principle-based. Because the world's so complex, you have to know where to ground yourself and you have to be very clear what principles you're going to operate from. So it's just interesting, Salma, that you say that. Your complexity point is a really, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one because... Let's take climate change as an example, right? It's one of those things that nobody can be blamed for, but somehow we we have to sort of turn it into a blame narrative because, oh God, China's emissions are over the top. But then, of course, why is the Western world lecturing China when it's already had its advantages of being a carbon-burning machine throughout its its industrialised period? So there's that element. But if you're trying to get to a solution... You cannot have a sort of a nationalistic breakdown of this. It has to be an international endeavour. But the more you require that for those complex structures to go across countries, the more you see this increased drive to populism that then tries to create external threats and external enemies because it's much easier to have that command and control structure if you have clearly defined tight national parameters. But of course it doesn't deal with the big issues that you're then going to have to deal with. So in some ways, we kind of, we still lean into this system where we can point the finger at somebody else because it's it's what we know. How much does the media play into it in Britain? I mean, we've got this adversarial politics system that exists, but the media loves to play gotcha. It loves that moment when the minister is forced to resign. And and do you think that's just a byproduct of the system or do you think the media actually makes everything we're talking about, the inability to genuinely learn lessons out of catastrophes, do you think the media actively makes that potentially worse? So I would say the media fundamentally is constrained by the obligation to sell newspapers, to keep eyeballs on screens and ears in earbuds. And as a result of that, there is a much more interesting story in this individual person has done something wrong and now there must be consequences. People love human stories more than anything else. And if there is some human drama associated, then that is interesting and sells papers in a way that something more backroom never will. And the real structural problems that we've been talking about are not going to work in the 17th page of the newspaper, let alone on the first page of the newspaper. So I think that really creates a bit of a perverse incentive for politicians because they know what are the problems that are going to get them on the front page of the newspaper and they know what are the ones they can probably get away with not looking at so much because that is never going to be as interesting to the public and to the media 
as other bigger issues. And that does mean as well, back to that five-year electoral cycle, that it's very easy for successive generations of politicians to think, I'll just put that one to the side and then let someone else deal with it in the future. And that keeps going, keeps happening. I I also think that... that the difficulty is, is that how the format of news is such that it sort of responds to individual psychological propensity to be able to take in information. And unless you're really dedicating yourself to knowing a certain issue, news stories can't cover things in the way that you might like them to, to give you full understanding. And I think that there is something about, you know, people themselves not wanting to know things at, at certain depth. And it's much easier to sort of you say, okay, here's a goodie and here's a baddie. And so is it really kind of just something perpetuated by the media or is it this also how we're built and how we function? In which case there's a much bigger problem in terms of how you communicate information to people. And, you know, I've, I've considered that quite a lot in terms of, you know, I did a lot of communications in government. So it's kind of what is the shortest, sharpest, most accurate way of delivering something? And that means editing things out and that means key nuances are then missed because we live in a world where black and white is the thing that is absorbed above everything. You know I think Jill the first thing you said to me or certainly the thing that sticks in my mind that is among the first things you said to me when we met in those early hours after the Grenfell fire was that we shouldn't look to blame people because it wouldn't help. And I couldn't get my head around that concept then. And in, and in many ways, I still can't quite get my head around that concept because it is natural, I think, after a fire or another catastrophic event to, to look to blame people. But listening to Charlotte and Salma, I think I'm starting to understand where you're coming from in terms of blame not helping. So there's this statement that I often quote, which is that blame fixes nothing. A natural response is, of course, to blame and want retribution, but it doesn't fix anything. And when we're focused on individuals and removing individuals from systems, it doesn't change the context and it doesn't fix the systemic issues. So blame can be emotionally satisfying but it can also stop us from digging deeper to understand the context inside of which people's actions made sense. There's two sides to blame as well. There's avoiding blame and apportioning blame. You might call this the blame game. And Christopher Hood, who we're going to be joined by shortly, wrote a book called The Blame Game, Spin Bureaucracy, and self-preservation in government. He is Emeritus Professor of Government, a fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. In the book, he describes how finger-pointing and mutual back-passing is a familiar feature of politics, and that blame avoidance pervades government and public organisation at every level. He thinks it's always been like that, but what he's noticed in recent years is there's been a change in the civil service as well. I think there's been a change in the bureaucracy. And I'm thinking particularly of after the fact review and what used to be called post-mortem exercises. And I do think that if you go back to 
earlier times, certainly in the British case, and you can see this from archival documents, in some departments you see some very searing post-mortems of what went wrong in particular operations. I've seen this, for example, in relation to taxes that failed and things like that. When I started in public administration, I was working on tax administration because that's the core of public administration. And I came across government documents through archives in the 20th century with very detailed post-mortems, as they were called, of everything that went wrong. The Treasury used to do this for every single spending survey, and you'd get a frank discussion of what got wrong. These days, these things are very, very hard to find. And I think I've seen more of a change within the bureaucracy, because perhaps it's all got more politicized. And you also have, of course, a freedom of information legislative framework, where it's just too dangerous to do that for people's careers. And so either what lesson learning exercises you get are very unspecific and general because of the liability issues, or they're buried deep under a carpet tile somewhere and you never find them. And it makes me also think about, um, and Matthew, it'd be interesting to get your point of view here, but the role of the media in this, because, do you know, in, in my work in high hazard industry, this thing about learning and being able to say you've made a mistake is absolutely critical because everybody makes mistakes. So you can't possibly, you know, be safe unless you are willing to share about where things are not going according to plan. But I, I do think in my perception watching the media is the media just jumps on who's to blame. It's the first question that gets asked after anything going wrong. I mean, what's interesting, if, if I think about Grenfell and unpicking Grenfell is, so the media moves quickly. And certainly in, in the environment we have now with social media and everything, the media moves extremely quickly. And the media narrative moves on very quickly in order to, for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, what's the next shiny object? And so if we go back and unpick Grenfell, that story develops very quickly. First, you deal with the just the, the site of the fire. Then you deal with the people who've died. Then you deal with, right, what's to blame here? But what I then find really interesting is if, if we think back to those awful days post-Grenfell, during and post-Grenfell, there were two immediate narratives that got set up. One was that the council had failed, and the other was that there were problems with the fire service response. And I, I, I'll be really interested in both your thoughts on this, because this is the reason I grapple with the difficulty of blame or otherwise, because actually, at the end of the day, here we are several years on, and actually, those two narratives are broadly correct. And so the initial finding of places, maybe not to blame is the right word, but to target the problem towards and to say we need to find solutions within the setup of the council and the setup of the fire service and the response of the fire service, those two narratives are correct. So actually that initial knee-jerk media response, if you like, of who's to blame? It's the council and it's the fire brigade, were broadly correct. And yet what I'm really interested in is why those narratives could actually potentially be more harmful than good. 
And my late mother worked in the National Fire Service during World War II. She was a communications officer. And I can remember her telling me stories about things that were very dramatically exposed in Grenfell all those years ago. And all the problems of communications and uh, what you do with buildings that are seriously damaged and the like. So in a sense, I've got a family connection with this kind of disaster. I I think part of the question that you're raising, I did try to think through in my book. And and that is the question is, when is blame good and when is it bad and how much of it do you want? And and I certainly did say in, in my book that there are problems about the idea of a no blame society. I know the literature, Jill, that you're talking about in so-called high reliability organizations where you're told that what you need for a high reliability organization that will deliver something reliably is a culture of openness, a willingness to admit mistakes, information sharing, and things that are highly joined up in information terms. All these things, you know, are kind of sound very virtuous. But I think that there are times when blame can have a a positive effect. And I did try to deal with that um, in my book for each of the three kinds of areas of activity, presentation, policy, and agency. I tried to indicate areas where you could have uh, blame could have positive effects. And here I was thinking about things like um, are you sharpening debate about what might have gone wrong or are you blunting it? And I've got a whole chapter devoted to that. So I'm not arguing either that all blame is good or that all blame is bad, but I am saying that there are more positive and more negative types of application of these strategies. From my perspective, one of the big things is understanding that behavior is context dependent. And as soon as you get into particularly individual blame narratives, you stop trying to understand the context inside of which decisions made sense to people. So you have to shift away from a blame. You know, there's this one um, quote that blame fixes nothing. It might be emotionally satisfying and you might remove some bad apple, but then you'll just replace them with somebody else in exactly the same context who will likely make the same decisions faced with similar circumstances. So a blame narrative stops you from understanding the contextual or systemic issues. And really what my book's done is rather than answer the question what went wrong is try to explore why did what happened at Grenfell and our failure to learn from multiple disasters make sense? What's the context inside of which it makes sense that we don't learn? Which I think is a far more useful question than who's to blame. And the media doesn't engage in that at all or very I shouldn't say none of the media some of your specialist media do and I think do it very well but they're not widely read because it's just what's news what's news what's news so you don't get into the systemic or contextual issues that lead to people making those choices and decisions so you don't leave you don't actually end up changing anything you just replace individuals. These are all very good points. I I agree with what you're saying. I think the notion of media and its short-lived focus on problems is maybe not as new as all that, in the sense that some of the literature 
that I deal with in my book about agency strategies for blame avoidance are built precisely on the assumption that the media firestorm, whatever it is, will be short-lived, you know, it will burn brightly, or it will rage through, and then it will be gone. And the argument about say, delegation to to avoid blame is sort of designed against that assumption that the heat will be short-lived and that all you need to do is to be able to get through a, a short period in which you can say it wasn't me, it was somebody else before uh, things have moved on. And and that kind of literature goes back at least to the 70s. Uh, blame was was around even back then. Um, there's something that it, it just triggers a thought for me, and I want to go back a little bit to something you said earlier, which is the whole thing around um, a no-blame culture, because this is often people go, you know, they say to me, but how can you never have blame? And there's, for, for me, um, really looking at failed accountabilities is something that can shift you away from blame, because blame tends to be focused on the individual. And it's critical that you do hold people to account for failures and also that there are consequences for the failures. And actually, when you were sharing what that triggered in me is the consequence of taxes, you know, because p part of the thing that we're dealing with post-Greenfall is who's paying for remediating the thousands of unsafe buildings. Tell me about it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leaseholder. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, wow, Christopher. I didn't know that, do you know? And for me, that's just absolutely insane, is, you know, that where consequences are born, for me, is so critical in this narrative around learning, blame, accountability. And when you've got kind of the, the people bearing the consequences are the most innocent parties, that doesn't drive any shift in learning, that said, I think it what it does drive, and it's come up for me a couple of times in this conversation, is I wonder if the public is getting better at seeing through the spin, um, through the media, and actually getting better at holding government to account. I think I'm a better citizen because of having gone through Grenfell, and I'm less taken in by the spin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And social media does give people an access to enabling change, I think, in ways that didn't exist before. So, for example, the end our cladding scandal, you know, all of the campaigning around that, that that's just interesting to me. I do find what you're saying there about um, sort of touching on people learning more about the way the world works through the way in which social media works and, and and the passing around of ideas and the understanding of the fact that just that complexity exists. I mean, obviously, you know, our newspapers and the media environment cover the extreme knee-jerk reactions of people on social media. But it's interesting that there is something going on which has both alerted people to complexity and made them think about complexity perhaps in a way that they haven't before. And I wonder in, in closing, Christopher, whether um, do you despair of the way in which a, a blame culture exists in society at the moment? Or do you see hope in the way that a blame culture could evolve into something um, that is more positive? 
I don't think that blame is all bad. And I don't think I would want to live in a no-blame society. Um, and I've given the reasons why I don't think so. I think it can have a positive effect in the real world. Uh, and I think that uh, the challenges are different in the three areas that I talked about in relation to blame. That is the issue of agency. And there, I think what you really want is something that's going to have a positive effect in pinpointing responsibility and limit the kind of uh, responses that are trying to blur responsibility. That's what you, what you want. With presentational strategies, what you want is something that's going to sharpen the debate rather than leading to changing the subject type of, you know, good data, very bad news, that, that kind of stuff. That's unproductive. What you want is something that's going to sharpen the debate. And likewise, I think in the, in the what I call the policy strategies, you, you want you want something that, that's going to lead to more discussion of allocation of responsibility and less herding behavior. But I think that, that generally what I'm trying to say is I don't think blame is all bad. I never said that it was all bad. Um, I think that in a real grown-up conversation, you've got to accept that there are good and bad aspects of it. Jill, do you want to add anything else? Well, I, I do not. I don't like the word blame because I, I, I think it takes you down a particular path. But I do completely agree with Christopher. Is it's it, you know, and no blame or what I would call no consequence is not helpful. It's how do you engage and create the right conversations and I think that if I look at the world the blame avoidance seems to dominate and stop all of the positive things that Christopher is speaking to do you know how can you create proper debates proper conversations about what went wrong um, I, I've often thought about what if politicians had to do a blame risk re register and make that publicly available. So you go, well, these are all the things I could get blamed for. And I'm actually going to make those transparent and how that could actually drive very positive behaviors. Because there is a, what people are afraid of in that sphere is probably appropriate and there's probably learning there. But, but with the way that the context is right now, my experience is that all the negative things get highlighted and very few of the positive aspects that Christopher mentions are. And I don't see that changing, unfortunately, in the current political climate. In which case, Jill, just picking up on that, where do we get change from? Has your thinking developed on this? Yes, I think it's down to organisations who are more stable, frankly, than governments, but I'm not sure that they're willing yet to step into the space of creating change. And more importantly, it's down to us as citizens. We all have a role to play. In our next episode, we'll be looking at how we can harness some of that. We'll be returning to where we started, where all of this started. We'll be returning to Grenfell to look at how grief can help in that process. 
Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig, author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts. Thanks.